Until a few months ago, if someone in England had been asked what they knew of Ukraine, perhaps one of the few facts they could have summoned up was that this is the country that contains the site of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant, the site of history's single most serious nuclear accident. Now, of course, we know a lot more about Ukraine, about its history, its suffering, its courage. In this edition of Bridges to the Future, I'm honoured to be joined by someone who has a strong and deeply researched set of views about, first, the lessons of our nuclear past, at a time when nuclear power is again being seen as an answer to questions of energy security and climate change, and second, for the prospects facing his own beleaguered nation, our ally, Ukraine. Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. I'm delighted to be joined by Serhi Prohi, who's Professor of Ukrainian History at Harvard University and author of several books about Russia, about Ukraine and about nuclear power, amongst other topics. His latest book is Atoms and Ashes, From Bikini Atoll to Fukushima. Serhi, welcome. Thanks a lot for inviting me and for having me on your program. It's a real pleasure. So, Sehi, I want to start with the book. And let me tell you, I was so engrossed by it that it's rather taken over my kind of imaginative life over the last few weeks. I've watched TV and internet documentaries on all but one of the nuclear accidents. I've even tried, say, to understand the science. I mean, I sadly failed, but I did I did try at being a complete dunce at science. So, you know, it's completely enthralling, these stories. They're terrifying, they're inspiring. I, I want to look at some of the themes. I mean, we could go through each of the case studies, but I, I don't want to kind of spoil people's desire to read the book. I want to look at some themes. And I want to start with possibly the strongest theme of all, which is the many ways that things can go wrong, from human error to seemingly natural causes. But it, it seemed to me that, that there were a set of factors that were kind of in the mix always. So poor design, particularly in relation to the early accidents, human error, often human error under immense pressure, and then in some cases, unforeseen events, you know, wind, earthquake, tsunami. I wondered whether, and you don't really do this in the book, I think probably it's, it'd be a little bit too simplistic, but do you think there's an underlying formula here that we can learn that X plus Y plus Z equals nuclear risk? Well, first of all, I'm really pleased to hear that you enjoyed the book, but also that it's really made you to some additional research or maybe maybe fill some, some gaps in the education when it comes to science, uh, because really the book is envisioned as, as a sort of an introduction to the theme and encouragement to study things further and to think about them. There is a direct relation, direct line between my previous book on the Chernobyl nuclear disaster and this one, because I wrote the book on Chernobyl as being a historian of Ukraine, of the Soviet Union, of Europe, not being particularly a historian of nuclear industry. And when I then was presenting my book and, and having meetings with the readers, questions that I heard were, okay, you described that all quite well. And again, the Soviet Union had a very particular ways of dealing with the nuclear industry and 
the particular type of reactor designs and, and cover-up was there. But do you really think that other governments actually behave differently? And I didn't have an answer to that question. And so I wrote this book comparing six different accidents. And if you would ask me whether there is any formula there, I would say that the design certainly is present everywhere. It's, it's a big issue. It's a big problem. Because till now, we have more than 440 reactors in place. None of them was designed with an eye on doing what they're doing, boiling water and producing electricity. All of them started as the reactors for military purposes either for the production of plutonium and enrichment of uranium, or as the reactors that were driving submarines. So till now, we don't have the reactors that would be designed from the very beginning, from the start go, for the purposes that we are using them for. And this is, this is one of the big matters and issues. And the second big issue is, of course, not just human error, but our way, how we imagine nuclear, how we deal with it, and the politics that that surround nuclear industry. That's exactly what I was going to say, that politics is never far away. The motives, as you've said, for nuclear power, the need to protect the national interest and reputation. So, you know, one of the things that's engrossing about the book is that this is so often about the kind of interface between technology and politics, isn't it? Yes, indeed. And this is true from the very beginning, because the nuclear industry was born out of the not just very political project, but a military project. There was bomb before there was anything else. And bomb certainly for sure was political, is political and will be political forever. And that means that what you see in the very origins of the nuclear industry is a lot of the politics of different kinds. First of all, you have to get the the, the money and the resources and to get them in a very secret way so that that would not somehow provoke similar actions on the part of your enemy. That, That was the story of the Manhattan Project, when enormous amount of money was allocated to build the first nuclear reactor in Chicago and then other reactors in other parts of the United States. And even Congress, the the vice president of the United States, Harry Truman, had no clue that anything of that kind was happening. And uh, secrecy is an important part of that story that starts with military, but then continues also into the civilian incarnation of nuclear energy. You look at Chernobyl, the reactor that exploded was a dual-purpose reactor. One day it could produce electricity, another day it could produce plutonium. And that's why it was top secret. You look at the Three Mile Island accident in 1979 in the United States of America, and you see that the operators were really trained by the Navy. And that was one of the contributing factors to the accident because When things started to go wrong, their immediate reaction was to deal with a huge reactor that they were running in the same way how they were dealing with the small reactors on the submarines where they were trained. And it turned out that the reactors were different. They they reacted differently to the measures that were used at that time. 
So politics are there from the very beginning. They continue till today. Just one more example, which is maybe close to home to many of, of the listeners. It's a windscale fire in uh, UK, more specifically in England in October of 1957. And the UK government is involved in, in the cover-up because it doesn't need bad news at that time, at that moment, because an accident at the, the nuclear facility in UK had the possibility of derailing plans of the government to re-establish relations and cooperation in the nuclear sphere with the United States, because the concern was that the U.S. would not want to work with U.K. if the accidents of that kind happen in the U.K. nuclear industry. Uh, so this is just a few examples that really don't don't do justice to the to the whole theme and the importance of politics in the realm of nuclear industry. Commercial production of electricity by nuclear power plants is really impossible or was impossible without support of the government and where government of course there is there is a lot of politics always yes and there are so many fascinating facts in the in the book and just a couple that sprung to mind when you've been speaking about the the fact that the nuclear power station not Winsco, but the one next door to it, as it were, that it was lauded as the first one that was producing power. But yet, actually, it produced virtually no power at all because nearly all the power that was being used was being used in order to generate the materials that were needed for the bomb. And then, you have to help me on pronunciation this, but kished him the first accident in the Soviet Union, the fact that we didn't even really know anything about it for, what, 20 years after it happened? Yes, it happened a few weeks before the windscale fire. It happened in September of 1957. And no one knew anything about it, at least when, when it comes to the public, until the second half of the 1980s. So basically, we're talking not about 20 years, but about 30 years. And in the 1970s, the U.S. intelligence in particular learned about this accident. But it was decided not to make any knowledge, any information about this accident public because it could reflect badly on the nuclear program in the United States or in the Western world in general. So we see that the, the, this conspiracies, that they were working very nicely across the Iron Curtain, across the dividing lines of the Cold War, because you see the, the superpowers, but also major powers that were able to develop their nuclear programs sharing the same kind of interests. I start chapter on the Chernobyl nuclear disaster by the reaction in the Soviet Union to the Three Mile Island accident in the United States. And the reaction came from the very top, from the head of the Soviet Academy of Sciences, who was also one of the designers of the Chernobyl reactor. His name was Anatoly Alexandrov. And he publicly was attacking the U.S. media and anti-nuclear activists for blowing out of proportion allegedly a minor accident at Three Mile Island. So the kind of behavior that you wouldn't, wouldn't expect from the Soviet official in the middle of the Cold War. But he was concerned like the, the American politicians, like American scientists, like American engineers involved in the nuclear projects, 
he was concerned about the, the publicity fallout from those accidents and uh, cutting funds for the development of nuclear projects in their respective countries. Which reminds me of another fascinating irony, which is the, the, the fact that the Three Mile Island, one of the reasons it caused so much alarm was that it happened literally days after the film The China Syndrome came out, which was predicting an accident very, in many ways, similar to what nearly happened at Three Mile Island, which is a, a remarkable kind of coincidence. There's a subplot, though, isn't there, say, about, around the kind of leaders themselves? And that's another thing that's fascinating. I mean, it is actually the leaders themselves who get personally involved in these incidents. There's Macmillan's determination to cover up Windscale because he thought it could undermine the, the carefully wrought deal that he had with the Americans over sharing nuclear technology. There was Carter's personal engagement in Three Mile Island because he was a nuclear engineer, so he actually understood it, and so he went. There was Gorbachev's almost the polar opposite of this. His almost complete unwillingness to engage. He didn't. I don't think he went to Chernobyl for years after it it happened. And and perhaps most compelling of all. And maybe you can talk about this because it is remarkable, the role of the Japanese premier who became a, a kind of critical decision maker in the midst of the Fukushima crisis. Yes, his last name was Ken and he got in trouble for becoming too active and telling the people in the industry what to do and how to do. But he really felt that he had, he had to take charge what was happening there. This story is about the involvement of the top leadership uh, are very, very interesting in the sense that they tell us a lot about societies as a whole. So through this history of the nuclear accidents, you also understand how, on the one hand, similar the reactions are, on the other hand, how they're different and how they're really shaped and formed by culture and particular political tradition. Because in the Soviet Union, that was all top-down. So the once the accident happened, no one was really there ready to take responsibility for what was going on. And whoever was the senior person in the room, he ended up, and it was always he, there were no women around, he ended up to be the main decision maker. So overruling anybody else in the room. So that's how the accident happened, because the person who was calling the shots was not in charge of the shift at the nuclear power station, but it was deputy engineer of the plant. Once the director arrived, the authority of uh, deputy engineer was not there anymore. And then once the high-level commission arrived from Moscow, the director of the nuclear power plant was turned into the errant boy. And it was only the deputy prime minister of the Soviet Union who actually had the political power to say the obvious, that the reactor exploded. No one else had that authority. And when it came to the evacuation of the city of Pripyat, again, it was not about law, it was not about instructions. It was all about the political decision that was made at the very top by the prime minister of the Soviet Union. And I am absolutely convinced I don't have sources to prove that. But even he couldn't make that decision without consultations with Gorbachev. And uh, it's, it's, of course, a very different story on a certain level in, in other countries, and in particular in Japan, where we started, where the prime minister really acted in a very Soviet manner. But for that, 
got really grilled by the by the parliament and then had had to justify his actions which seemed to me very unfair because as i understand it if it hadn't been for prime minister kan's intervention the company responsible for Fukushima had reached the stage where they simply wanted to walk away. They felt that their their workers were in so much danger, they didn't know what to do. And they were simply, as it were, going to abandon the plant, which would have been, could have been utterly catastrophic. And it was him, the prime minister, who who absolutely insisted that they stayed there and tried to deal with this. He comes across to me, he made mistakes, but as a pretty heroic figure, actually. Yes, I certainly agree with that. The, the claim whether they were prepared to leave or not, of course, has been contested by the by the leaders of the company. But uh, my reading of the sources suggests that the prime minister's instincts were right. With the way how the captains of, of the industry were acting in Japan, you can find a lot in common with what is happening also in other countries during other accidents. Because I was talking before that about differences, but there is a lot of similarities. And similarities are that at the end of the day, no one wants to deliver bad news. And no one really wants to take responsibility for things once they went wrong. And of course, with nuclear accidents of the kind of the proportion that I discuss in the book, no one was eager to do that. But again, still, there are some differences there as well. Uh, the wind scale fire is really very interesting in that regard, because until almost the crisis was over, the people at wind scale were reluctant to inform their officials in the special government body commission that oversaw the nuclear sites about what was going on there. There was a type of an arrogance there that, well, they were the pioneers in the field. What was the point of informing anybody about anything else if they can't figure out what to do? Who who could do that? So it comes generally with, again, a lot of talent, but also a lot of arrogance on the part of this first generation of nuclear scientists and nuclear engineers. They were really entering uncharted waters, taking enormous, enormous risks, but very really, in that sense, felt maybe fully the responsibility that came with that. Yeah, no, it's it's another remarkable story within the story of that moment when, you know, almost all the most intelligent kind of physicists in Britain all converge upon Cumbria for this incredible project, which despite the fact that Windscale is, as you explain, describe, has enormous design problems. It is an accident waiting to happen. Nevertheless, the building of the plant in in kind of five, ahead of schedule and on budget. I mean, <laughs> nowadays, the idea that any kind of infrastructure project of this kind could be delivered on scale and in budget seems ridiculous. But, but it was, which takes me to, to a final kind of theme, uh, which is from leaders really to workers. And I I felt that if there was a story here, the story was, as we've discussed, human errors, often very understandable human errors because these are people under enormous pressure. Also, incredible courage. I mean, people who walk into and stay in situations where they know they are potentially doing grievous damage to their bodies. And indeed, many people died quickly or died slowly as a consequence of what they did. And the third theme is often a lack of acknowledgement that often those people 
who took responsibility, who did what they could in those circumstances, end up either being blamed or simply being ignored. And it requires a history like yours to remind us of some of these hidden heroes. That is one of the themes that is common for all those accidents. And this is the readiness of people to really sacrifice their their health or maybe lives to deal with the accidents that in some cases were, of course, partially their own creations, but in most cases were not at all. What is also common for all these cases is that once the accident happens, there starts a tug of war. There is a lot of finger pointing. And the common theme is the common question that the, the top authorities try to answer is, who is responsible at the end? Whether that was there were problems with design or there were mistakes or violations of the regulations by the operators. And in the most cases where the government is involved, the finger is being pointed at the operators. The very same people who also then sacrificed everything they had to deal with the, with the accident. That was the case with windscale fire, where people were really very upset when the Prime Minister Macmillan pointed finger at them and in a very, very public way, after the fact that actually through their actions, through their sacrifice, the fire was extinguished. And the accident happened very much because of the pressure applied on the management, on the engineers to produce as much plutonium as possible because, of course, what was happening was the arms race and UK was trying to get enough fuel for the first hydrogen bomb as soon as possible. And indeed, they were on time there that they exploded the hydrogen bomb when they were supposed to explode it. The same story is, of course, with the Chernobyl, where the people were put on trial and, and blamed. They were not blameless, but they were the only ones who were blamed by the Soviet government because suggesting or even allowing to think that something was wrong with the Soviet design of the reactor uh, meant uh, huge losses in terms of prestige for the Soviet authorities, but also in financial terms because the Soviet Union was continuing to build the same reactors and were supplying a different design of the reactors to not just to Eastern Europe, but also to Finland. So there is a tendency to blame the people who are the less powerful, the the, the less protected and all that. Your story of Windscale reminds me of, I keep reminding you of these amazing facts in the book, but I'm only scraping the surface. There is so much, but I, I was fascinated by the fact that actually Britain's hydrogen bomb was a failure, but yet they managed to convince the Americans that they had succeeded by exploding something that was a kind of one-off, wasn't really a hydrogen bomb at all. It was just a very, very big kind of atomic bomb that was big enough for the Americans to go, okay, fine, you've done it. I mean, that was a, <laughs> that's a, another kind of little fascinating thing here. I want to talk briefly, and it seems unfair to talk about it briefly, but to talk about what's happening in, in your own country. But just before we do that, where do you think we are on nuclear power now and where do you think we should be? My sense is, uh, indeed, I've, I think you've, you imply this in the book and you've said it subsequently, that in the end you think that although the arguments for economic security might point to more nuclear power, although the climate change arguments for nuclear power are there, in the end this is, I think as you put it, a 20th century technology and it's 21st century technologies, it's renewables we should be turning to. And in particular, although your book is about nuclear accidents, 
it's not so much accidents as the problem of waste that leads you to feel that nuclear power shouldn't have a future. Because again, one of the themes of your book is that when these accidents end, that's not the end at all, because the process of cleaning up and dealing with what has been left by the accidents, and indeed what is left by successful nuclear power, goes on almost forever. Yes, uh, with wind scale, it took decades, more than half of a century, to deal with decontamination. There has been no experience so far in the world fully decommissioning and then doing the cleaning for any of the nuclear power plants whatsoever, even despite the fact that, again, I'm not talking about accidents, I'm not talking about Chernobyl, about about normally functioning nuclear power plants. So we really don't know what is the, the cost of the electrical energy that is being produced by those nuclear power plants because we never paid the full price. And then, then you mentioned, uh, of course, the spent fuel. This is a major problem that has not been solved so far in uh, scientific terms, nor in technological, nor in political terms, because in political terms, no one wants to have nuclear waste in their backyard. Which brings me also to the really the, the return of nuclear issues and problems in the course of the current uh, Russian war on Ukraine. Because during the first, already the very first day of the invasion on February 24th of this year, the Russian troops took over control over the Chernobyl nuclear power plant site. And among many things that were there, there was a cooling pond for the spent fuel from the last Chernobyl reactor that was shut down in the year 2000. And now we are in the year 2022, but the assemblies are still super hot. And if the water is not supplied there, they would rupture and there would be further contamination of the environment of quite significant proportion. For water to be, to be pumped into the pool, you need electricity. And during the military operation, the warfare in the area, more than once the electricity line that was supplying Chernobyl site was damaged. And it was just by sheer luck that, first of all, there were the enough, enough diesel to start the emergency generators and restart the pumps. And then eventually the Ukrainian electrics, electricity crews were able to, to restore the power supply. So this is about the, the barbarity of the war that comes now to the nuclear power plants and sites. But it's also about this unsolved issue so for this spent fuel to be safe, you need electricity, you need additional money, you need personnel, and you need no war, no disruptions, or no floods, or no any sorts of accidents for decades and decades ahead. So that just highlighted that, that particular problem in, in a very, very concerning way. But also the war brought the takeover by the Russian troops of the largest nuclear power plant in Europe, the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant with six reactors. Uh, there was an actual battle on the territory of the nuclear power plant. There was shelling. One of the buildings caught fire. By sheer luck, again, it, it didn't come to, to worse than that. And the problem is that we are not equipped, we don't know even what to do, 
none of the 440 or 144 reactors, depending on, on the day, that are operating today was designed with the idea to withstand the shelling or, or to be in the war zone. But that's what is happening today. That's what we are having today. And we are completely unprepared. Yes, no, I think that's an incredibly powerful argument. It certainly had an impact on me in the sense of, particularly in relation to this question of that nuclear power stations always have risks, that, you know, Fukushima, it was an earthquake and it was a tsunami. Who knows what can happen? And war, of course, is one of the things that can happen. And that's not actually part of the story of your book. None of these accidents are the consequence of conflict. But of course, we've been reminded of the danger and that, you know, these power plants, the waste storage places are in places where conflict is quite possible. So I think this is a very powerful point. Now, say we're speaking today on a day when President Zelensky has, it seemed to me, wanted to draw attention to the danger that after all these months, it might somehow be that despite the fact that the war has not gone in the way that Russia wanted it to have gone, and it's taken all sorts of kind of damage and humiliation, but that yet it might still succeed through a kind of grubby stalemate in achieving what people assumed generally at the outset were its war aims. And he's clearly worried, and you know, what President Macron has said has exacerbated this as well. How, how concerned are you that in the end, the allies will become exhausted, that, that they will find some way of stepping away from this conflict and allowing Russia to keep at least some territory and therefore to be able to say that they've succeeded? Uh, well, uh, I am very concerned, and this concern is not hypothetical, because what I see certainly in the actions of President Macron, what I see in hesitation of the Chancellor of Germany, uh, what I see in the proposals apparently made by the Prime Minister of Italy, is exactly this the search for the way of how to really sweep the whole issue, the, the whole conflict, the, the whole war under the carpet. Following into the footsteps of what happened in 2014 and 2015 after the annexation of the Crimea. But it is time really to learn from history and to learn from our own mistakes as an international community. Because I'm absolutely convinced that if the world would react to the Russian invasion of Georgia in the year 2008, the way how it reacted now to the all-out war against Ukraine, we would not have not just this war, we would not have also the annexation of the Crimea and war in uh, Donbass in eastern Ukraine in 2014-2015. If we allow the aggressor to keep the territories again and get, in that sense, gains territorial and otherwise from this war, again, that will not be the end of the war like there were hopes in 2008 or 2014. That only emboldens the aggressor. And I am concerned that this realization is just not there when it comes not just to the politicians, when it comes to the public at large. Because all the countries that I mentioned are democratic countries and the, the politicians serve there really at pleasure of their electors. And uh, I think that this trajectory, the, the immediate history of this war that we have today 
is very telling and there are, there are very clear lessons that we, we have to learn. Otherwise, it will not be just repetition of what we have today. Otherwise, there will be a much bigger war on a much bigger scale because that's what has been happening in the last 30 years from Chechen wars to the Georgian war to the annexation of the Crimea to all-out war against Ukraine and I didn't even mention Syria. Yes, thank you, Say, for saying that. And I, you know, listeners will know about my own political background, and um, I have many, many criticisms of Boris Johnson's government. But on this issue, uh, I admire the way that our government has been so strong. And arguably, it is easier for Britain to be strong. It it has to make fewer sacrifices than mainland Europe potentially in relation to this conflict but but we have shown leadership and and it's important that we continue to do so yeah, yes and i just want to say that again ukraine and and ukrainians not just know about that they're, they're exceptionally grateful well thank you and, and thank you say for the book atoms and ashes from bikini atoll to fukushima it is as i've said it fascinating, terrifying, inspiring. Um, as I said at the beginning, it led me into all sorts of avenues because I just wanted to devour more, to find out more about these accidents. So I strongly encourage it. So, so thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was, it, it was a real pleasure. Thank you and honour. So that's it. I just want to end by saying that in the face of situations like the war in Ukraine, it can so often feel like we, ordinary people, are powerless. But our attention does matter. If Russia thinks that the public in Britain, the West, is losing interest, then Russia will gain heart. So at the risk of sounding pious, however long this terrible conflict lasts, let's not let Ukraine leave the headlines, or leave our hearts. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.